Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebro, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The Definitive Rap is proud to be the official podcast of Vin News. Today, we welcome back our favorite columnist, JNS Senior Editor-in-Chief Jonathan Tobin, whose columns are a must-read for everyone who loves America and Israel. Over the last few weeks, Jonathan has written many columns about what's going on in Washington. And with everyone I read, I said, this is the one I want to talk about on our show. But since we have 30 minutes and not three hours... I decided to focus on his column about President Biden's apparent flip-flop on the Iran nuclear deal. In a recent interview with CBS's Nora O'Donnell, the president seemed to suggest, by nodding his head, that the U.S. will not lift sanctions until Iran ceases to enrich uranium. Yet, on the next day, his press secretary said that nodding yes to a question is not the same as giving an affirmative yes. And, And that does not translate to U.S. foreign policy. Even more concerning is the current Biden team, who negotiated the original terms under the Obama administration, seems to be sending a clear message that President Biden is not in control of the terms or conditions of U.S. strategy. In another move, the administration removed the Iran-backed Houthis fighting in Yemen from the State Department list of terrorists. Add to all this Joe Biden's still-yet-to-call Bibi Netanyahu after 40 days in office leaving many to wonder, is this Joe Biden's decision or that of his new staff, described by many as pro-Palestinian? Some people want to believe that the president has his hands full with COVID and other pressing domestic issues, while others believe that this is a deliberate snub and a not-so-subtle slapdown against the Israeli prime minister, who had a very strong relationship with President Trump. And like everything else that Trump succeeded at during his term, the Biden team seemed determined to undo. Bela, I know you had some comments before you introduce Jonathan. Yes, thank you, Alan. It is everyone's fervent, fervent prayer that we achieve world peace, and especially peace in the, in the Middle East that ultimately affects everyone. One of the features that we expect and appreciate seeing is leaders who communicate with one another. With respect to President Biden, it is disheartening to many, especially Israelis and American Zionists, that he has not yet called Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at all since taking office. Additionally, there are reports that the Biden administration um, are renewing ties with the PLO that has been on hold since 2017. And what is very worrisome about this delay in their communication is that the discussion regarding the issue of Iran's nuclear program needs to be discussed. While former President Trump withdrew from the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement and imposed sanctions on the Islamic Republic, President Biden has expressed a desire to return to the deal. We have with us today an expert on the subject, 
Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of JNS, who is a senior contributor for The Federalist and a columnist for The New York Post, Newsweek, and Haaretz. Welcome, Jonathan, and thank you for joining us again on The Definitive Wrap. Jonathan, uh, in a recent article that you wrote for JNS, you talk about contradiction in reference to the foreign policy speech delivered by President Joe Biden. In addition, you said that he sent a variety of confusing and mixed messages. Can you please elaborate on that so that our listening audience will grasp a better understanding on what is going on and why there is so much concern? Well, first, Bela, thanks for having me on, and to Alan as well. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Um, as for President Biden's contradictory messages, um, he's kind of all over the place. Now, we start out with the assumption that he wants to uh, take back everything that Trump did. And now, in a certain sense, every new administration always does that with previous administrations of the other party. But this is particularly true with that of Trump, who is considered the font of all evil by Democrats and the people in the Biden administration. They are eager um, to turn the clock back to January 2017, and that is accentuated by the fact that most of the Biden foreign policy team is basically an Obama reunion party. Um, There is a, you know, most of his foreign policy team um, from Secretary of State Blinken and... uh, National Security Director, uh, Advisor um, uh, Sullivan, they're all former Biden people down to, uh, you know, lower level uh, posts as well. So it's very clear. And they brought back Rob Malley, um, about whom we could say a lot, who is sort of the champion of appeasers, champion of Israel critics within the foreign policy establishment to work on Iran. So it's clear they are changing the way America intends to conduct its foreign policy. Um, They say on the one hand, they want to uh, re-up America as a player in the world and to be close to its allies, but they are mostly focused on dissing and distancing themselves from America's two uh, greatest allies in the Middle East, democratic Israel and authoritarian Saudi Arabia, um, with whom Trump was both was close. Um, and they want to go back to the policy of appeasing Iran. And that is their main priority. Now, as far as the question of when Biden will call Netanyahu, um, I think most of the, co- the uh, commentary about this question kind of on the one hand, both overestimates the significance of this question and underestimates the significance of this question. It's both can be possible. Now, of course, it doesn't really matter when the phone call actually happens. Foreign policy is conducted on a whole lot of levels. And a chat between uh, these two old acquaintances, I wouldn't call them friends. That's over. That's exaggerating. They're not really friends. Um, But they are acquaintances, two veteran politicians. It doesn't matter when they have this pro forma talk. What matters is what is the substance of the relationship. And on that it is very clear that Biden is sending a message. Number one, and it, you know, it's it's kind of uh, to use sort of the vernacular towards um, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, America's new message is: we're not just not that into you. We don't care that much about you. Now, if you're a, a supporter of Israel, if you love Israel, 
there's a part of you that isn't that unhappy about that because we know that whenever Israel is at the top of America's agenda uh, in the headlines, it's generally bad news for Israel. It's about something bad happening. If America is going to ignore Israel, just let Israel do its thing and conduct its own, its own life, that's what friends of Israel want. <laughs> we want Israel to be left alone. But Biden's intention isn't really to live, leave Israel alone. Of course it isn't, because his priority is to get back into the relationship with Iran and um, on some level to take Israel and Saudi Arabia down a peg and to get the Palestinians back into the mix. And that is because, and that's where we get to the staff, because the new foreign, Biden foreign policy team is filled with people who are ideological true believers in the primacy of the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. The real insight of the Trump foreign policy team, who are mostly amateurs, who were not foreign policy experts, they were not members of the foreign policy establishment, was that they understood that the Israel-Palestinian conflict is not at the center of American foreign policy. It's not at the center of the problems of the Middle East. It's old news. And the rest of the Arab world has largely abandoned the Palestinians. They're sick and tired of being held hostage by them um, because they need to have a relationship with Israel in order to confront Iran and defend themselves against Iran. And, um, you know, the, uh, the, it, by, the Trump foreign policy team, made up mostly of real estate people, understood that the Palestinians were like somebody who owns a property which is depreciating in value rapidly, you know, and that had no, and was soon to have no value at all. Mm -hmm. um, they keep, you know, that the price keeps going down. On the other hand, the Biden people are still, they still think that the Palestinians, uh, you know, own Trump Tower. <laughs> they still think that they're the center <laughs> of the universe, even though nobody else thinks this, even though even they somehow know that there can be no progress with them. And that is the problem. That's what's going forward. It doesn't matter when they talk. It matters what is Biden's intentions. And that's where we have to sort of follow it. Okay. Jonathan, I've got so many questions. I don't want to hit you all there at one time. And I agree with you that if Biden was going to leave Israel alone, I think that would be Israel's dream. But when you have the Biden team, promising to reestablish and renormalize the Palestinian Authority, that is no longer uh, constituting leaving them alone. Uh, when you have Jen Psaki being asked if Israel and Saudi Arabia are still considered essential allies and she can't give an answer, that's, that goes way beyond leaving Israel alone. Um, so if you can comment on that, and then I've got more to throw at you. I'm sure Bela also had some questions about uh, your opening us uh, monologue. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Obviously, there is a clear message being sent. Uh, as I said, we're just not that into you. We don't like you. Now, to drill down just one level further, to me, uh, the interesting question about Biden's intentions here, again, as I said, it doesn't matter the phone call. What matters is what's going to happen next. And will Biden be tempted into intervening in Israeli politics. Remember, Israel is about to have an election next month. Right. Um, it may be another stalemate. Who knows what's going to happen? But there's no doubt that Biden doesn't want to do anything that will, at least in his mind, prop up Netanyahu. 
as he heads towards uh, you know the next election as the head of the largest party, the most likely candidate for prime minister, although it's not clear that he has a majority or that his opponents have a majority. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it is familiar. It happened the last three times. But Biden um, may be tempted, um, even though he has been here for all of it. He's been here, you know, the last 50 years um, to uh, do the thing that American administrations love to do, which is intervene in Israeli politics, even though Americans are very prickly about other people and been intervening in our politics. American presidents have routinely intervened in Israeli politics, although mostly unsuccessfully. Um, and indeed, as any member of that Obama reunion club knows, every time President Obama tried to pressure Netanyahu, tried to undermine Netanyahu, you know, go back eight years uh, when Netanyahu was about to start his second stint as prime minister and Obama was the new president. Um, American foreign policy towards Israel for a few months was basically revolving around the effort to stop Netanyahu from being prime minister and then to right. overturn his government. It failed. And over the course of the next year, eight years, the Obama people learned, or they should have learned, that all American pressure actually helps Netanyahu rather than hurting him. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a piece last fall speculating that as much as supporters of Israel um, at least most supporters, you know, ardent supporters of Israel, supporters of the national camp in Israel, were unhappy about the prospect of Trump losing. That wasn't necessarily bad news for Netanyahu, because if he can point to a hostile American administration to which only he has the gravitas and the diplomatic standing to stand up to them, that actually helps him at home. You know, it's everything is, can be reversed here. So right. it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a lot to wrap your brain around, but that's, you know, you got to play four-dimensional chess here because that's what the players are doing. So let me ask you another question. And Bela, I apologize if, uh, if you want ahead. that question, <laughs> just let me know. But so, you know, after Oslo, I understood that Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, they thought that peace could be at hand, just a matter of tweaking a few things. But now that we know that peace is not at hand, um, is it that Biden really still thinks that he has the magic touch? Or is it more about advancing the Palestinian narrative? Because it's never really been about peace. If you ever look at their statements, they say, we support an Israel that's Jewish and democratic and a Palestinian state that, uh, that's independent and they can live with dignity. You never hear them saying to support a Palestinian state that is democratic, which certainly does not advance American interests. So what, because I don't really think it's a, it, about advancing peace anymore. I think there's advancing another agenda. And with all of the people that Biden brought in and, you know, the, the names like Maher Bittar, Rima Bowden, uh, Avril uh, Haynes, uh, these are all Palestinianists. These are people that had relationships with CARE. These are people who were activists with Students for Justice in Palestine. So these are not people pushing for an Israeli-Palestinian peace resolution. They're pushing for a different agenda. Yeah, I, I think we have to, uh, again, um, you know, you don't want to play Kremlinology to harken back to a term of an earlier generation trying to understand the Biden administration. But the fact is, there is a difference between the mindset of someone like Joe Biden, who's been sort of part of mainstream American politics for the last 50 years, and these activists, these, you know, foreign policy establishment types who have very different ideas. Um, 
he's not ideological about Israel. I mean, he's, right. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's tied to his mindset of the last, you know, decades. You know, he really does, in, in theory, believe in the peace process. But I'm going to get, you know, we have to give him enough credit to know that he, he knows Mahmoud Abbas is not going to ever make peace. I mean, even Joe Biden understands that. The other people within his administration really have a more anti-Israel agenda uh, at play. Um, they may not believe in Abbas either, but should there be another leader, Palestinian leader, uh, come along to replace Abbas, Abbas is 85 years old, um, he has no intention of ever leaving office, um, uh, you know, they may get behind, um, you know, convicted killer Mahwan uh, Barghouti, they believe in talks with Hamas, they will be stirring up trouble. And it's part of their Iran appeasement strategy, too. I mean, they're looking to undermine Israel, undermine the U.S.-Israel alliance, um, and to put Israel in its place, even if they, even they understand that the Palestinians don't really want a two-state solution or anything along those lines. Okay, so Jonathan, here's another, oh, go ahead. Um, Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley claims, quote-unquote, that the Biden administration is snubbing our friends like Israel but they're cozying up to enemies like Iran. Do you think that's true? Is that President Biden's deliberate intentions? The real question, the elephant in the room, if you will, is does it give the impression that this new administration wants to hurt Israel and the Arab countries that worked alongside on getting the sanctions passed on Iran to hold back terrorism, even if that's not so? Is that the impression that it, it wants to give? Listen, in broad that it's even giving. Mm-hmm. In broad strokes, what Nikki Haley said is, is true. Um, it, they are clearly, there is a snub of Netanyahu. Uh, clearly, they want to uh, give Iran, as President Obama <laughs> famously said, another chance to get right with the world. But it, but it really does go deeper than that. Um, I don't believe that Biden wants to harm Israel he just wants Israel to do what he says it, it should do. That's always been his position, his mm-hmm. position. I mean, he's that kind Can of. Can you elaborate on that, please? That, that, you know, he, he loves Israel as long as Israel's doing what he says. He wants Israel to be the Israel of the Labor Party of the 1980s, basically. Uh, that, that's it. Now, that's obsolete. It's out of touch. Um, but there are worse things. And that's what the rest of his staff is aiming at. They're aiming at a, a much more um, hostile um, point of view. And uh, they do, you know, Biden doesn't want Iran to have a bomb to, you know, to be able to destroy Israel. Biden, I believe, you know, doesn't want them to have a bomb. He actually believes, foolishly, as many, as many Democrats did, that the nuclear deal was appeasement, though it was, it was the best chance to to put Iran in a position where they weren't going to get a bomb. But of course, it, it's doing the opposite. And as he goes forward, he has to negotiate. You know, he, he has to find a way to do this. Now, that CBS interview with Nora O'Donnell was very interesting because he sounded very tough. It wasn't just the nod that, um, you know, Jen Psaki was focusing on. Before the nod, he said, yes, Iran must get back into compliance with the admittedly weak terms of the nuclear deal before he will, you know, before he will drop sanctions and, and uh, you know, and do what they want. That's the real crux. And what his team is trying to negotiate with him is something much less than that. Clearly, so when he got back into the, 
you know, when he got back into the office, they were not happy with either of either the nod or the yes, um, because they're negotiating something much looser. Because for them, having a piece of paper with Iran is the folk is is the main deal. Now, what Trump got right about Iran was not just you know that they're bad and we have to do something about them. It was that the nuclear deal that Obama agreed to with them was not merely weak, it had an exit. It has sunset clauses that will, by the end of this decade, allow Iran to have a nuclear bomb with Western, okay, with with, with Western permission. That has to be renegotiated. Biden knows that. Everybody in Washington knows that. Everybody in Europe knows that. They just don't want to have to deal with it. You know, they'd like to all kick it down the road. You know, he won't be president in 2030. You know, who knows who will be president in 2030? You know, we should all live and be well, as my late mother would have said. God willing. Uh, and, and that's and that's their policy. Trump said, no, we got to fix it now. Oh. And that was why his policy in Iran was was basically correct and why that has to be a point of contention. That's that should be. And that's Israel's point as well. If you want to renegotiate with Iran, make it tougher. Don't make it weaker. Don't go back yeah. into the same weak deal. And that's the basic disagreement here. It's not about personalities. It's about that very specific policy choice, which is a clear and present danger to the West and to Israel and the Arab world, which, you know, and the Arab states fear Iran far more than they ever did Israel. Jonathan, you know, we all know that Saudi Arabia is not a Western value country. Their human rights record is nothing to be admired, but Iran is so much worse. So why is it that the Democrats are more intent on rekindling a relationship with Iran instead of Saudi Arabia, knowing that neither one of them shares our values, but one is just so much worse? Why are they throwing their lot in with Iran? Well, of course, um, they would not characterize it as throwing their lot in with Iran, but that's not unfair to say that. Um, I, you know, I, I think part of this is Trump. Part of this is, you know, it, it's partisan politics. Um, you know, the, they are hot to have to be tough on, 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 on the Saudis because they see the Saudis as allies of Trump. They see them as a, you know, sort of retrograde power. Um, but what they fail to understand and, you know, with respect, Iran isn't just worse than Saudi Arabia because those kinds of, there's no calculus to say that one tyrant is worse than the other. They're both awful. You, you won't, don't want to be a Saudi dissident. Sure as hell don't want to be an Iranian dissident. That's not the issue. The issue is which of these two countries is a danger to the rest of the region. In Iran, with its quest for regional hegemony, with its quest for nuclear weapons, with its sort of um, maniac Shia extremism, they are a threat to the rest of the Arab world. They're a threat, direct threat to Israel, which they wish to destroy. They're a threat to the West with their sponsorship of international terrorism. That's why, that, that's the problem here. It's not who's the worst tyrant. In dealing with the Saudis, it's the same um, calculus. It's the same problem that we have with Egypt, the most populous Arab country, which is now ruled by an incredibly repressive government led by General Sisi. I mean, they're awful. I mean, that's an awful regime. He's worse than Mubarak was. But the choices in Egypt, just like the choices in Saudi Arabia, are not between the current tyrant and some theoretical liberal Jeffersonian 
good guy, you know, administration that we'd like to install instead of them. If there were such an option, we should definitely back the liberal Jeffersonian. But there are no liberal Jeffersonians, or at least not enough that count in either Egypt and none at all in Saudi Arabia. Our choices are between the current tyrants and worse people who are Islamist terrorists, people like the Muslim Brotherhood, people like Al Qaeda. <laughs> That's the choices. Um, you know, the, in, it, it's fine for the Biden administration and Democrats to get up on their hind legs and talk about how terrible the war in Yemen is, and it is terrible. But the choices there aren't between good guys and bad guys. It's between the Saudi and the Yemen, the Saudis and the Yemen government, and the Iranian-backed Houthis, who are worse, who are the enemies of everything that we stand for, who are, you know, that's the clear thing. Cutting off aid to Yemen and stopping the Saudis there doesn't do a darn thing for the people of Yemen or the people of Saudi Arabia. What it does is hand a victory to Iran, and that's a mistake. Jonathan? Um, John Kerry's appointee as special presidential envoy for climate has been raising fury amongst American Zionists, especially in relation to his appeasing Iran and undermining Israel. Can you please give us an outline about his career in relation to that and to where this anger is coming from? Well, John Kerry has been wrong about so much for so long. It's really, you know, we, we have, don't nearly have enough time to go into that in detail. In point, um, the Iran nuclear deal was largely Kerry's baby. Um, you know, he has fought for it. And since, you know, he, he left uh, the position of Secretary of State, he spent the Trump, the, you know, the four years of the Trump administration urging the Iranians in person, talk about a, a you know, well, violation of, uh, of U.S. law, if you want to go there, um, advising them to just wait out Trump a democratic administration will do what they want. Um, that's his deal. That's what he's about. And um, if we want to go into his climate change um, obsessions, and that is, you know, it's a very fashionable cause. Um, and I, I think part of it with Kerry um, is that he sees, um, you know, the need to go beyond our traditional allies and to have very different priorities in American foreign policy and very different values. And um, I think this is, you know, if there were, if he were going to do anything serious, it would be a real danger if I thought he could actually accomplish anything on the international uh, community and the international agenda, um, you know, that I would be worried about it, but he is such a bumbler. He is so um, serially incompetent and foolish. And all he can do is just say yes to American, America's enemies. I mean, you know, uh, say what you will about Trump, but his evaluation of the negotiations with the Iran nuclear deal were spot on because every time, you know, the United States went into that negotiation with strong demands and a strong position. O Obama had promised during the 2012 campaign to end Iran's nuclear problem and nuclear program. And every, every, command, every demand that the West made, the Iranians said no, and Kerry said, okay. And then he'd make another, and then, okay. Um, that's his whole deal. Um, uh, as with many people in the Biden administration, it's sort of this blind, almost religious faith in multilateralism and multilateral world institutions like the UN, UN Human Rights Council, you know, where so much bad, so many bad things happen uh, which are, is the home to so much anti-Semitism. 
they believe in them, not because they believe in anti-Semitism, but they believe in sort of multilateral, you know, diplomacy for its own sake. That is the, the core belief of John Kerry, the core belief of many people in this administration. And I think it will lead to a lot of bad things, certainly in the Middle East, and present many dangers for American foreign policy that they're not, not only are they not fully aware of, but they're marching headlong into them because they believe in it as, as a faith. And um, that is uh, certainly the thing that we have to watch for. And that's what's so dangerous for Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship here, because so much of the international community is so biased against Israel, even though Israel is more accepted than ever. Um, I'm, I'm afraid um, this administration is just buying into um, old paradigms that can lead to nothing good for either Israel or the United States. Jonathan, I want to pivot to a completely different area because you wrote some great columns over the last few weeks about political hypocrisy in Washington and whether it was the hypocrisy about how Marjorie Taylor Greene was treated versus uh, Elon Omar or uh, Raphael Warnock statements versus the charge of, of incitement against Donald Trump uh, while uh, the media and Democrats got away with four years of incitement against Republicans and Trump supporters. So, I, for one, I'm never going to, I don't defend anything that Marjorie Taylor Greene said. I think her statements were very loony, very kooky. And I'm not one that really accepts apologies that readily. I think if you're a grown up and you say something, you own it. Now, I give her her due for calling a press conference and taking all the incoming shots. But what bothered me, and I know that you wrote about this, is that she got raked over the coals for her very, very idiotic statements while Ilhan Omar, uh, her statements were not said out of anger. They were, they were her beliefs. Raphael Warnock's comments about Israel, which were made about the same time as uh, Taylor Greene's comments were made, 2018. And yet he got a complete and total pass. Um, can you address, I mean, we know hypocrisy, it's, we can talk about it, but why this is so dangerous and why, in my opinion, I think Republicans are even hesitant they know that she, that her comments were bad and they don't want to be associated with her. But there's a difference between McCarthy saying, you know what, we need you to shut up, but we're not going to throw you to the wolves. Where, uh, in contrast with how Steny Hoyer praised members of the squad as being good people who you may disagree with. Yeah, listen, there's, you know, the toxic thing here is partisanship. Um, we're in the most hyperpartisan moment in American history in our lifetimes. Um, basically, you know, within historic memory, and you know, both sides view each other as evil. Um, they don't trust each other. They don't credit each other with good intentions. So, anybody that's on your side, no matter how awful they are. You're, in, you know, people are inclined to make apologies for just with anti-Semitism. Uh, people have tunnel vision. They only see it in their political opponents. People, I think if you're a Republican, you only see anti-Semitism among Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you only see anti-Semitism among Republicans. So yeah, and there's a terrible double standards um, going on. The way Il Ilhan Omar got a pass for anti-Semitism, which is ideological. She and Rashida Tlaib, and the, you know, they are BDS supporters. They are you know, which is intrinsically anti-Semitic. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the only way to describe her beliefs that, you know, everything that she said up until now 
So she's a nutcase. She's a 9-11 truther. She's a believer in QAnon conspiracy theories. You know, Republicans should have distanced themselves from her. The Republicans should have punished her themselves. They should have made it clear, as they did to Steve King, who wasn't nearly as nutty two years ago, and and gave them the moral high ground to criticize Ilhan Omar, as I wrote about many times then. But the problem is, is that Republicans feel the Democrats are so against them. They feel so victimized by what happened during the four years of the Trump administration between what what's happened since the Capitol riot and, and January 6th, which has been inflated into an insurrection as if it was, you know, another civil war and we're going to have a new domestic war on terror um, about this, which is all about politics. It's not about a real threat to the Republic uh, or about real extremism or anti-Semitism. It's about, you know, turning all Republicans into insurrectionists and anti-Semites, branding them in that way. And in that context, Republicans, you know, they don't want to just not impeach Trump, you know, or vote to convict Trump. They want it, they're ready to defend anybody. And I see this even among, you know, members of the Jewish community who are pro-Israel and conservative. The fact that the left attacks Marjorie Taylor Greene makes them like her. Just as when Trump attacked Ilhan Omar, you know, liberal Democrats, many pro-Israel Democrats who should have known better, were ready to embrace and forgive and say, oh, it wasn't so bad. She, she means well. She's a nice lady. Um, and now we, I, I hear some of the same things from the Republicans about Marjorie Taylor Greene, even though they would never be nearly so forgiving with anybody on the left who said half as many of the quacky things that she has said. That's what toxic partisanship does, does to this. Nobody's willing to admit to truths about their own sides. You know, they think Trump is perfect. He never did anything wrong. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a great patriot. Right. You know, and it's, it, it, there has to be more choices than Ilan Omar is a great patriot and wonderful. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is, you know, is a great patriot and wonderful. There are more choices for that for rational people. But in a toxic partisan environment, you're just picking one of the two. And I'm not willing to pick either of those two. Right. Jonathan, we have exactly two minutes left. Um, you're a brilliant commentary. Can you tell us what is your opinion of the U.S. reentering the START Treaty with Russia, which will limit U.S. nuclear weapons while China continues to advance? Do you think President Biden is taking China seriously? Um, no. <laughs> you know, on one foot, no. I think the Democratic Party is much more oriented. They have convinced themselves over the last four years for partisan rather than geostrategic reasons. You know, eight years ago, uh, Obama was mocking Mitt Romney for being focused on the threat from Russia. Uh, but because they perceived Trump or Trump was perceived as being soft on Russia, which was his own fault, even though his policies were actually tougher on Russia than Obama's. So then Democrats decided that the Russians were the great threat. They felt, you know, falsely believed that he that they elect, you know, Putin elected Trump. Um, and all of a sudden, Russia, they, they started sounding like Cold War far right wingers about Russia, the Russia, you know, finally the Democrats woke up to the threat from Russia, you know, 35 years too late. Um, and they're slow to understand that China is the rising power. It's a totalitarian state. It's a threat to our interests, not only in the Pacific, but in, in terms of the world economy. Um, we have to focus. And the um, desire for, you know, the, the nuclear agreements with Russia are in a sense 
unimportant because we know Russia, we're not really in a nuclear rivalry with Russia anymore. We don't, no one seriously fears a, a nuclear attack from Russia. And they, they, they're, they're actually a weak, um, declining state, which is why, while China is a rising state, which is so the focus on Russia rather than China, it's not that Russia is good or that Putin isn't a thug who would do, do mischief to American interests wherever he can. That's clearly true. But China is the more dangerous party. And, and again, we don't have to choose. We don't have to be friends with one or not and enemies with the other. We, you know, a rational foreign policy sees them both as threats, but a really rational policy understands that China is the long-term threat and Russia is the, is the enemy of the past, as dangerous and as untrustworthy as they are. Okay, our time is up. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan, for your presence on our show again. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to The Definitive Wrap. And we proudly thank Venus for being their official podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.